190, 180 kilometers per hour. Under two kilometers. The lunar lander keeps breaking. Now in vertical orientation. Only one kilometer above the surface remaining. We're getting closer and closer. About 120 kilometers per hour, 700 meters. We will soon have reached the planned landing time, at which point I might ask you to wait for a few moments for us to confirm the status. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello and welcome back. We've had another news-packed week, mostly from the Far East, and it's a mixed bag. It's often said that space is hard, but landing on the moon is harder. Just over three years ago, the state-run Indian Space Research Organization tried, but its Vikram lander smashed into the lunar surface, and it took months to find and then confirm that the wreckage had been found. So the event that captured the attention, the imagination of those of us who yearn for not simply a human presence on the moon, but a thriving commercial lunar economy, we joined together in the hundreds of thousands around the world Tuesday to witness Japan's space transportation company iSpace softly set its Hakuto R M1 lander on the moon. This is Kevin Zaleski, an iSpace communications Only specialist. above the surface now, and now we are at the moment of planned landing time. Again, everyone, please give us a few moments to confirm. We hope to maybe receive a message from our MCC soon. If that is not the case, then we will need a few moments to continue investigations and we'll update you as soon as we have new information. Our MCC crew standing by, waiting to confirm. Everyone is laser focused right now. You can really feel the tension. Please allow us a little bit more time to confirm the status of our lander. And when that critical moment came, when we wanted to know the result, we waited and watched the iSpace Mission Control Team's faces for a sign that the Hakuto R phoned home, but it didn't. This is Takeshi Hakamada, the founder and CEO of iSpace, breaking the news. At this moment, we have not able to confirm successful landing on the lunar surface. Our engineers at MCC is continue to investigate the current status of the lander. Currently, uh, we have not uh, confirmed the communication from the lander. We already confirmed that we have established the uh, communication until very end of the landing. However, now we lost the communication. So we have to assume that we, uh, our, it may, uh, uh, we could not complete the landing on the lunar surface. Our engineers uh, will continue to investigate uh, the, the situation, and then we will update you the, the further information once we finish the uh, investigation. 
At this moment, what I can tell is we are very proud of the fact that we have already achieved many things uh, during this mission one. As I said, uh, we have been secured the communication at the very end of the uh, landing. That means we acquired actual flight data during the landing phase. That is great achievement for the future missions, mission two and the mission three. To that end, that is important to feedback what we learned from this mission one to mission two and the mission three. That's why we built our sustainable business model uh, to continue our effort for the future missions. I'd like to thank you, all of the employees who have, who have been contributed to this mission since the beginning of this uh, company and then to the present. And then also our families who continued to support us, and the sh our shareholders, our partners, and our customers, and the suppliers, and the everyone who believe in iSpace vision. We will keep going. Never quit Luna Quest. If this all goes the same way that India's hard landing went, it will likely be some time, possibly months, before the lander, or well, what's left of it, is visually located. So the next day, on Wednesday, South Korea's president, Yoon Suk-yeol, joined U.S. President Joe Biden in the White House Rose Garden for a press briefing. The South Korean leader was in Washington, D.C. for a state visit. South Korea signed the U.S.-led Artemis Accords roughly two years ago, making it the 10th nation to sign onto NASA's 21st century lunar exploration plans. It's a coalition of mostly democracies, with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates being the two monarchies. But what made me prick up my ears was what the South Korean leader said about space and defense. This is President Yul through a translator. We have also adopted a separate joint statement for strengthening co cooperation in the rapidly emerging quantum science and technology domain. President Biden and I have also agreed to get the ball rolling on discussions about expanding our alliance into cyber and space by applying the mutual defense treaty in cyberspace and space as well. This press conference occurred after I spoke with this week's guests, but you can be sure it certainly registered inside the halls of power as South Korea's neighbor and communist North Korea's patron, China. The latest space developments in China are the focus of this week's episode, and on Monday, China celebrated its eighth annual National Space Day. The Department of Defense, through its published threat assessment, squarely believes that China is the United States' pacing threat. And many in the space community feel that China's space capabilities have surpassed those of the United States. I don't want to give away what's in the discussion, but U.S. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said last week at Space Symposium, quote, the key to China, China, China is space, space, space. My guests Jonathan Ward and Joshua Carlson agree. 
Here's our conversation. Welcome to the Downlink Podcast, gentlemen. Joshua, Jonathan. Hey, Laura. It's very good to be here. Thanks, Laura. Good to be with you. You know, there's a metric ton of space, defense, and China news to get after. But before we do, let's do some introductions. Joshua, you're an editor, a book author, and an expert on China's space ambitions. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on now. Hey, Laura. Thank you. So uh, my big claim to fame is I wrote the book Space Power Ascendant. Uh, It takes a look at both the United States and Chinese space programs over roughly the next 20 years, uh, war games them out, and comes to some very interesting conclusions. Also puts forward a theory of space expansion and how we should be looking at space, because how we describe things with words is often how we think about them, which changes how we address them. And so I would I would highly recommend that. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's on paperback, hardcover, Kindle, and Audible for anyone who's interested. Um, Right now, I'm working on a book that examines Sun Tzu and puts it in the context of modern warfare. I'm hoping to have that come out here hopefully this year. And uh, as you mentioned, also an editor. So uh, I work for Dauntless. It's a volunteer space magazine. We're always looking for more articles. Uh, You can go to dauntless.space online, see some previous articles, and uh, we're always looking for good submissions. We want you to be brave and be dauntless. And Jonathan... I think it would be fair to call you a China hand. And it's not often that I run into someone who has as much or more experience than I do in the Mandarin speaking parts of the world. So please take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us about what you're working on now. Sure. So I'm probably best known for writing China's Vision of Victory, which was the first book to explain the global grand strategy of the Chinese government in their own documents, their own words and deeds. And my new book, The Decisive Decade, um, American grand strategy for triumph over China comes out uh, this week. So, um, you know, the second part, in a sense, to to a series here, where first, um, you know, what does China want? And the second, what should we do about it? So the decisive decade explains what I think the right U.S. strategy uh, should be for um, global strategic competition with China. Um, I'm also the founder of the Atlas Organization, where I advise U.S. government and American businesses on competition with China. And my PhD is from the University of Oxford, where I specialized in China-India relations after initially being admitted to do Russia-China relations. So, you know, the major powers are um, something I've been focused on since I was really a teenager, learning languages at Columbia, Russian and Chinese, and then spent a bunch of years overseas in a variety of different uh, continents and regions. Now, before we start digging into what should be a very meaty discussion, I think it's really only right that we take a minute to discuss the iSpace, Hakuto R, Mission 1, and unfortunately, This space startup lost contact with its spacecraft during the final seconds of the landing sequence. Now, at the time of this recording, the spacecraft's true status is unknown, but it certainly doesn't look good. Joshua, this was supposed to be the commercial space industry's first lunar landing. Heck, iSpace was just listed on the Tokyo Stock Exchange about two weeks ago. What effect, if any, do you think that this likely failure will have on other commercial space transportation companies? I mean, we've got a handful of U.S. space companies in NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, or CLPS, that are launching this year and in the next and then the next. Yeah, Laura. So I I think ultimately the effect it's going to have uh, is largely dependent on how they deal with it. Watching the CEO's uh, briefing yesterday, I think they handled it very well. Um, and they're already looking to the next mission. They, they already have 
funding set aside for the, the mission they just failed, another mission after that, and then a third mission. So it's not like they're going to necessarily have a shortfall of funding. They are going to be able to execute two more missions, more than likely, depending on what they what uh, telemetry and other data they can get from the failed mission, likely failed mission. Um, they will be able to make their next one better and likely, I, I would expect, based on the fact that they got all the way to the moon and just had a failure in the last stage in landing, um, I would expect that they will probably be able to succeed at the second and definitely by the third, probably the second. And I think that there's some very interesting effects that this will have on the commercial space world. As you mentioned, this was supposed to be the first commercial program that was going to land on the moon. And unfortunately, with this apparent failure, it doesn't look like iSpace will be the one to do it. But you have uh, Astrobotic and Intuitive Machines are next in the hopper to go. They're both going this year. And they are both going, as you mentioned, through the CLEPS program. And so more than likely, one of them is going to be the first one to successfully land on the moon now. But that means... Uh, that means the pressure is on. True, but also unless there is something that dramatically goes wrong, I would expect one of these three, two now, missions will be the first commercial mission to land on the moon, which is a significant milestone in space development. And what's awesome is that this now puts the United States and its allies with um, Japan in the lead of the space program as we seek to develop the moon and have a commercial presence on the moon. And this also has to be viewed in context of SpaceX and the fact that um, Starship just had its, its uh, what was that, uh, rapid unscheduled disassembly? Rad. Uh, yes. 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 Um, their, their rapid unscheduled disassembly of their Starship, but it was the first successful test of a Starship rocket, a complete launch of that rocket. Which and is 28 stories tall, everybody. This is not small. No, um, it is one of the largest rockets ever launched and apparently did significant damage to the uh, launch base, unfortunately, which I'm, I'm sure they will work to mitigate in the future. But this looks messy, but this is this is the beauty of commercial launch and this is the beauty of commercial space is they can genuinely fail fast, fail cheap and get all of that data and improve. Uh, a lot of times government programs don't fail as flashily as this. But they also take 10 or 15 years to, to mature, whereas SpaceX can churn out another one and they've got one ready to go in a year and with all that data now to improve it. So it, it will impact, I think, mainly who gets to the moon first as a commercial mission. I think that's probably the single biggest thing that comes out of this. Um, but this is all good data coming out. And I think 2024 looks like it'll be very, very exciting uh, for commercial space in general. 2023 looks like we'll see the first commercial landing on the moon. Now on to China and space. This Monday, China celebrated its eighth National Space Day with the main opening ceremony in Anhui's provincial state, Hefei. There was the usual mass blast, rose-colored media rollout of China's space triumphs that included many documentaries depicting President Xi Jinping's China dream on English-language platforms. But what events or announcements stood out to you guys in either the run-up to the festivities or on the day, and why do you think they're important? Well, look, Laura, I think the, the important thing here overall is the existence of the National Space Day, the continuity of that, the fact that it's a very robust sort of performance by the CCP. And the bottom line is uh, this is a country that is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a party that's preparing its country for a de facto space race. I mean, we can see that um, across the board, the way that they've made, um, 
you know, space a national priority, the way that they're working that into the main strategy documents and political statements. I mean, Xi Jinping's uh, discussion of space um, in the 20th Party Congress, the fact that, you know, space is part of the overall great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Of course, China's Vision of Victory is a book that's about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation as the central overriding strategic goal for the Communist Party that goes all the way back really to, to Mao Zedong and his belief in the new China that China had stood up. Um, so for the CCP, um, you know, achieving, uh, you know, space um, prominence or, or even preeminence is, is, I think, at the core of some of their thinking. They understand it to be one of the most significant strategic domains of the 21st century, and they're engaging the entire nation in this activity, or they're trying to. And we can see that from, um, you know, who's in various political positions to also um, you know, the the fact of the, the space day itself and its sort of pomp and circumstance. And then on the other side of this, of course, we have to ask ourselves, are we ready for this? I mean, we're going to be in a de facto space race with the People's Republic of China. It is, um, you know, military on one hand, but it's also as economic. And, you know, Josh's book, Space Power Ascendant, I think was, you know, one of the real breakthroughs in explaining what space could look like as a very expansive sort of unlimited domain uh, for economic power um, in, the, in the 21st century. But China understands that very clearly. And, um, you know, the example here that we were just talking about with iSpace, I mean, regardless of the, the um, you know, sort of mishaps that are happening uh, in the private sector, we're going to compete with a genuinely robust private sector going to space. Um, if we think about the fact that public-private partnerships are going to be essential to winning the overall strategic competition with the People's Republic of China, um, I mean, there are many strategic industries that matter, but I think um, commercial space on the U.S. and allied side um, presents one of the most interesting case studies of all. I mean, this is one where the private sector has transformed um, the nature of this industry. And on the other hand, you know, China's, um, you know, China's going to be doing this largely through state-led um, operations and state-owned companies and that sort of thing. So we're going to be, I think, in a very clear systems competition in this particular industry. I, I want to echo Jonathan. I think the fact that we have the uh, JFK, we choose to go to the moon speech for the first space race. I don't think we've had that same moment in this second space race. You could and argue we knew that, that moment. We want I, that I would moment. agree. Yeah. You could argue that it that maybe the founding of the Space Force is, is kind of part of it, but it's far more than just a military service focused on space. And so I think that that's absolutely essential that China makes they have a national space day and they they celebrate it resoundingly, they they are focusing their population on space. I don't think we are doing it the same way. So I, I share Jonathan's concerns. But the particular one I wanted to highlight was that they gave lunar regolith gifted to Russia and France. And that's interesting in rele relevance to iSpace, because iSpace, one of the things that iSpace's now apparently failed launch was supposed to do was to grab lunar regolith and sell it then to NASA to help uh, develop the commercial elements of space transactions. And so that's the first part. And then the fact that it was gifted to Russia and France, obviously Russia is continuing its aggression in Ukraine. And I would argue that Russia and China have formed a new axis, if you will, in the world of authoritarian regimes bent on revising the world system. But it's really interesting that France was included in that. I wonder if this is related to Macron recently going to China and then coming back saying to, to try to get China to intervene in the Ukrainian conflict, apparently. Coming back, talking how Europe needs to to get away from American dictatorship or American hegemony. It's interesting that uh, they gifted that to France in particular. That would not be what I would expect normally, and I wonder if that's related to that. Um, and it's interesting. I, I wonder. Uh, I wonder what France had to give for that. Well, I think that they understand that France is a thread they can pull 
in the alliance system in their attempts to divide it. So that's very unfortunate that Macron is playing into that. Uh, I think it just reminds us that there's a lot of work to be done within the alliance system. I mean, the best possible response to the Russia-China axis is the consolidation of the alliance system from NATO to allied Asia and everywhere in between. Um, but we have a lot of work to do. I mean, that's going to be hard diplomatic work. We cannot take a single ally for granted. And U.S. diplomacy is going to have to be globally thoughtful and to work with the foundations that we've had since the, um, you know, since the early Cold War. So, so you know, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, both within our own alliance system and to say nothing of the emerging world and the contested nations that also matter to this contest. But, you know, and, and space diplomacy, I think, will become a very interesting subject there. I mean, you look at uh, China sort of uh, making overtures to Brazil for space and things like that. I mean, there are many, many facets of international cooperation, and the U.S. has to, I think, have a comprehensive strategy. And I think our excellence in space may actually be a, an incredibly interesting way to engage with many emerging nations, um, to say nothing of actually shoring up the alliance systems itself. Well, and so, and two quick thoughts on that is that obviously Sun Tzu talks about the fact that you first attack your enemy's strategy. After that, you attack their alliances because if you can remove and divide alliances, you can in, ensure that conflict never occurs because they aren't able to mass sufficient forces. So, as we said, France is a very unfortunate um, is a very unfortunate thread that's being pulled. Um, but it's also interesting the fact that China, I mean, we've kind of referenced it, but I mean, China uses the Baidu and other satellite systems that they have as a means of diplomacy, uh, um, relating it back to the Belt and Road Initiative and all these other things that they use to try to form a, a competing economic sphere, be able to compete with the United States um, and the, the Western European area that is particularly one of our, our stronger allies. It's it's really fascinating watching the formation of, in a lot of ways, great power competition for the first time in our lifetime. And also, you know, as, the, as one of the key points in the decisive decade is how this isn't, if this is going to be won or lost based on economic power. I mean, our ability to uh, work as a global economic superpower is going to be essential. And we shouldn't underestimate the, the fact that Beijing is genuinely trying to create an alternative economic system and an alternative strategic system. So the best thing we can do is to strengthen our own, to win the global contest for economic power, to integrate the strategic industries, to to let that be a centerpiece of how the world begins to function again. And, you know, if we're able to do that all, then, then we're going to win. But, um, you know, space is going to be an important new domain, not just militarily, but economically, um, as you've pointed out, Josh. So, you know, that's this is going to be a full spectrum picture. And to get back to space and to Anhui province, did you know that in Anhui province, at, at least in its leadership, there is an example of how acutely she feels that men with real space credentials should reach and occupy the highest ranks in the Communist Party and also in government structures. And I say men because there's no women in China's Cosmos Club lineup. But an example of the grooming for that future that's going on is Anhui's vice governor, Zhang Hongwen. And Jonathan, as a China hand, you know, at roughly 48 years of age, Zhang is among the youngest to reach his rank. He's also an aerospace engineer who has led work on an array of missile weapon systems and rockets, and he was deputy director of the state-owned China Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation. His portfolio in Anhui now includes civil-military fusion. And in a prior episode in November, this podcast covered the members of the Cosmos Club who now occupy Politburo positions and lead ministries. But Jonathan, from your research, who else is in this Cosmos Club that stands out to you? And why is it important to remember what levers of power this club now holds? 
Well, look, I think um, when we talk about the Cosmos Club, however, um, you know, one sort of explains that. I mean, it, it's interesting to see some of the different departments um, that are part of that. I mean, the State-Owned Assets Supervision and Administration Commission, SASAC, um, that is Haopeng, and then um, the uh, Military Civil Fusion Office with Jinjiang Long. Is, uh, I think the, the existence of those two offices is important. I mean, realizing that, you know, China's in the process of preparing for multi-spectrum industrial corp, um, competition that they are going to, you know, prioritize space as a strategic domain, both militarily and, um, you know, economically. I think on one hand, it's just, you know, how how is this contest going to work? Um, you know, how are we going to um, sort of, uh, you know, pursue this contest with the CCP on one hand, and how are they going to do it? I mean, it's all about how we get organized, I think, as um, governments and and, and uh, societies for global strategic competition. And, um, you know, when you refer to the Cosmos Club and, and we look at just two of the most important elements of Communist Party structure and power here, I mean, SASAC is totally underestimated. I mean, I think SASAC is going to become, um, you know, much, much more important and uh, widely understood piece of this picture in the coming years. I mean, that's the core of their economic power. It's 97 state-owned, um, you know, corporations. It's uh, trillions of dollars worth of assets and revenue. It's across <clears throat> pretty much every strategic industry you can imagine, not only aerospace, but, you know, many others, uh, including foundational and, uh, industries like energy and, um, you know, mining and you name it. I mean, that in a sense is the whole of government economic strategy they've got. So um, when we talk about that and its role here, and then also uh, civil military fusion, which is, I think, um, in a way, the the the, the real uh, rebuttal to U.S.-China economic engagement. I mean, at the end of the day, their basic goal through civil military fusion is to ensure that innovation um, from the civilian sector, and that includes any sector. And by the way, the way that they're organizing that is much more complex than a single department. And they have many approaches to this uh, structurally. So, um, you know, the, the the fact that that civilian innovation across multiple industries is meant to be, um, you know, obtainable by the Chinese military. I mean, it shows us the integration of their system and the way that this works. And I think we've yet to see how this uh, quote unquote club is going to, to operate in government. But, um, you know, it certainly includes some of the most important uh, departments in the entire structure and the departments that I think are most important to Beijing's sort of top level strategies. I mean, un underneath the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, of course, you've got the industrial strategy of Made in China 2025, which even though the name has been discarded, of course, it, it was um, around for, for longer than, than it was announced and it still exists. And then, of course, um, the Belt and Road and, and I think um, SASAC, the deployment of their corporations for strategic power. Um, that's going to change the entire world economy because we're going to have to get in that game too. I mean, we're going to need our companies to, um, you know, to be aligned with the the U.S. and allied national interests. So, so in a way, the the, the system and the structure that they've built is one that we're going to be forced to respond to in order to win a global economic and and military competition. So, we're seeing a couple of uh, key elements of their structure uh, inside this, uh, you know, so-called uh, Cosmos Club. Well, and, and also, so Hai Jinping, the Minister of Education, is really interesting. Um, he previously was the president of Beihang uh, University, an institution that specializes in space development aviation. And what's really interesting about that is we were talking already about Space Day and how you are, are focusing your population on celebrating space and the national uh, achievements there. And... The fact that they're also taking it very seriously from the perspective of education, from the minister of education. So from the very beginning, China is making sure that nose to tail 
of, of in their population, whether you are a school student or you are in the population working and you're celebrating China Day, they have space tying it from from the beginning to the end. And ultimately, a national competition of this level, as I'm sure Jonathan would tell you, I mean, to develop all of the technology and the innovation that we need, we have to have a solid education system to do that. China is taking steps to ensure that they are primed to be able to do that. And uh, I think that this is an area that they are very serious with competing with us in. And um, I defer to Jonathan. I, I'm not entirely as convinced that we are as serious in pushing, putting forward either a combined vision or seriously competing with them. Well, Josh, that's why I wrote the new book. I've been very concerned that we do not have a genuine counterpoint to China's vision of victory. We need one and we need one badly and we need to start acting and working and executing on a grand strategy of our own before the time is gone. Um, and in the meantime, I think we can appreciate that they, you know, is as clear as I think they are in certain regards in, in Beijing, um, you know, they're still learning how to do this. They're still figuring out how to pursue their broader strategic goals. And when we see the structuring and restructuring of various organizations and departments, I mean, it's all about them trying to improve their um, capabilities. So on one hand, we're, we're uh, working against, I think, a very fluid um, sort of uh, set of strategies, but in pursuit of a very definite um, objective, which is the return to preeminence of the uh, of China. Which leads perfectly into my next question and the reason why I put us through the paces on who's in charge and the connection to space in Xi's regime is to drill down on a reconstituted Ministry of Science and Technology and the new Central Science and Technology Commission. It would seem that China, like the United States, is, well, looking to use science and technology for national defense superiority. Joshua, Jonathan, why are these developments important to space and U.S. national defense? So I'll I'll go first real quick, Jonathan. Um, so looking at the technologies, so obviously reconstituting it, they want to revitalize it. They've given themselves some very uh, aggressive timelines. Uh, Namrata Raswami just recently wrote an article about this and The Diplomat, very much worth looking at. Um, basically, the three technologies they are looking at, they are looking at space technologies. They are looking at AI and they are looking at quantum. And historically, militaries that have been able to drive what's called a revolution in military affairs, or an RMA, have been very, very successful. Uh, the, one of, some big RMAs recently would be like in World War II, the advent of the tank, and the ability to rapidly move armored firepower around the battlefield was a revolution in military affairs. Um, during the Gulf, the Gulf War, uh, precision targeting and stealth were revolutions of military affairs. They drove the technology and the application of it drove a new way of fighting that had not been seen before. And by the way, the Chinese paid attention to this during uh, one of their books talking about uh, unrestricted warfare, specifically point, it was written in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s by some Chinese officers for their uh, war college equipment. And they basically pointed to the Gulf War and they pointed to the fact that the United States had driven technological advantage to the point where China had to adapt. And what we are seeing right now with space, quantum, and AI, if you put all three of these together, um, let us assume real quick that you have space systems that are able to exist and operate independently, driven by AI, and they have uh, quantum computing capability and quantum encryption so that they help to neutralize the ability of hacking, which, by the way, fails just yesterday, demonstrated the ability to hack an ESA satellite, a uh, European Space Agency satellite. 
and potentially take it over, which now is a uh, threat, a non-kinetic threat to massive constellations, which has been heralded as the, the way to ensure that we, we can survive any conflict. Well, uh, you still only have so many O's and ones going through that satellite. If I take that over, it doesn't matter how many satellites you have. I flip it over, I burn into the atmosphere, and you know what? It, that's great. Now you have a bunch of trash that's going to burn up in the atmosphere. And so China being able to exercise all of these, um, once you start getting to the moon, once you start getting beyond that, you start getting, among other things, and what's fascinating about the AI element, is you start having signal delay of several seconds. If you are operating... Or in, minutes. or Well, I mean, yeah, you start getting out to, to Mars. I mean, you're talking significant, significant delays. Nothing... Uh, uh, for anyone to put that in perspective, imagine trying to play Call of Duty or some game and you're playing a person with virtually zero ping. They're perfect, no latency. And you're playing and your opponent has a five second latency on their game. There is zero chance that you successfully compete with that adversary. And having AI and the ability for something to respond without direct signals is a significant improvement over current capabilities not to mention the OODA loop and the fact that they are also and the OODA loop is i'm sorry just for so, those that don't know what it is yes uh, yes i'm sorry so the OODA loop is was observed um several decades ago fighter pilot put it together and basically was originally in the context of air combat that a pilot will observe orient decide act and then observe what his actions have done and the loop continues um ooda uda and this is this has been noted to be a general uh method of attempt is described as getting inside your enemy's uda loop what you are trying to do is think and decide and act faster in a in a fashion that now forces your opponent to make mistakes because you are operating so quickly and you can generate so many problems for, for them that they cannot respond fast enough. And what AI is integrating, even in orbit, the satellites would be able to respond to potential threats faster and automatically disengage themselves. If, for instance, I have 50 satellites that are all under attack and I only have 20 operators on the ground or whatever, um, each operator now must operate two satellites and attempt to move them avoiding threats. If AI is doing all of that, and now I can just give it general directions, that significantly reduces the OODA loading and makes them significantly more survivable, which is very concerning. And what if, can if you... I may add something to the um, the Ministry of Science and Technology, I mean, I think there's there's another side of this. And, and this is why I think it's important for us to situate space and the role of space in the broader context of Chinese grand strategy. I mean, for, for the CCP, you know, space may be a very important domain, an important element, but it's also one that they see in a far broader context. So, you know, if we go back to um, the 20th Party Congress, I mean, when Xi Jinping is talking about space, you know, towards the relative, um, you know, front end of his his speech, you know, here's what he says. We have grown stronger in basic research and original innovation, made breakthroughs in some core technologies and key fields, and boosted emerging strategic industries. We have witnessed major successes on multiple fronts, including manned spaceflight, lunar and Martian exploration, deep sea and deep earth probes, supercomputers, satellite navigation, quantum information, nuclear power technology, airliner manufacturing, and biomedicine. China has joined the ranks of the world's innovators. Um, so the point here is that, you know, they have all of these goals here. 
in the advanced industries, in the strategic domains, and they look at it as a whole. So we're dealing with them not just in the silo of space, but um, as part of a very full spectrum economic um, and military grand strategy. And the U.S., um, I think, um, you know, it's arguable if we've ever had to deal with something so comprehensive as this. Um, and so I think that that's why we have to keep our eye on the, the very big uh, picture here, you know, the whole of the elephant, so to speak. And uh, and remember that, you know, the, the Ministry of Science and Technology is uh, on one hand, yes, it's going to facilitate military innovations. But the other side of this is, um, you know, they're going to be very focused on economic and productivity gains, you know, trying to break their way out of the middle income trap, even as U.S.-China economic competition intensifies, you know, to, to, to sort of compete against their own demographic decline. I mean, all of those are going to be national goals here. Um, so when we look at the broader objectives of science and technology in the People's Republic of China, it's um, it's a full spectrum set of objectives. And, and if I could chime in real quick on that. So the People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Forces, the PLA SSF, this integrates their space capabilities, their cyber capabilities, and their information warfare capabilities into a single command that supports all of the rest of the PLA. And that's significant. Underlining Jonathan's perspective, they look at it as an integrated whole. Right. And we do not. And that, and that's that's an issue. I mean, we're going to have to figure out how to um, compete against a, a very broad-minded um, uh, opponent. Gentlemen, we've run out of time. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. I, I appreciate it, Laura. Thank you very much. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully we can do this some other time. Yeah, thanks, Laura. No, this was this was great and uh, fun to have the open ended conversation, and I appreciate being able to throw in some uh, you know primary source and all that. And, uh, great stuff. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the Dale Link on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.